Is that my daughter in it? No, it's Frame Rate with your hosts, Michael Swaim and Abe Epperson. I'm Michael Swaim. I'm Abe Epperson. And that is not a line from what we're covering today. But, no, I don't know why I said it. It's just a line Abe and I like to say a lot. Is that that my pizza in there? Is that my daughter over there? And so on. Um, (laughs) From uh, Mystic River, which I hope we do cover someday. It's on the list. Yeah. 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 Someday. Um, Did you say I'm Abe Epperson? I did. Great. We said all all the things. It's frame rate. We rate frames. We got it. Aha. 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 We didn't say all the things because we didn't say. Well, now we have. That... I didn't realize we were kind of aping the movie we're going to cover right now, but it was unintentional. We're being extra bantery shitheads, but um, we are. Co- it is a pick the flick. It's a pick the flick, which means uh, that a very lovely and beneficent patron on patreon.com slash small beans sponsored us to such a degree that we're going to talk about this movie today. And that movie is Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. And that patron is... Now I want to say David Bell because we were talking about how they have the same last name. I've forgotten. Who is it? It's Jason. Jason, Jason Bell. Bell. Hi, Jason. Mm. Um, I wonder Thank if there's so any relation. Much. I bet there's not. We were talking about this. How many bells are there? <laughs> it depends. Probably tons. Uh, I wish I could make an Animal Crossing joke, but I don't play it, so I can't. Uh, That's their money, sir. The bells is their money. <laughs> So we're covering Rosencrantz and Guildenstern Thanks for the dead. bells. Um, yeah. But yes, thank you, Jason. And thanks for bringing this uh, movie to our attention. I hesitated to say movie because I would usually say play. Um, because the first thing yep. to point out about this is that it is written by Tom Stoppard, who has written a number of films, including, I think, humorously enough, The Bourne Supremacy, but um, mm-hmm. is known in the playwriting world as... Yeah one of the greatest playwrights of his generation, like alive at this time. And uh, so it's interesting that he switched over to film both writing and in this one case, I think this is the only movie he ever directed. This is the only movie he's ever directed, though he's worked in the industry as a screenwriter. Yeah, uh, exactly. Most notably as a ghostwriter on some of your favorite films including Indiana Jones and Jurassic Park and a lot of Spielberg. Oh, I didn't know that. I just yeah. know his full credits on IMDb. He ghost wrote a bunch of that stuff, huh? That's he, cool. Uh, well, he ghost wrote, he was known as like a punch-up guy in, right. his, in the 90s. Like he was considered a guy that you take your script and he'd think of like great one-liners Man, to like throw it in that. there. I want to do that. <laughs> uh, one of the famous ones that he's accredited is um, in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Uh, that great line where Sean Connery and Harrison Ford are all tie- are tied up and against each other in chairs. Oh, yeah. And he says, and is that the my Nazi daughter lady? right now? <laughs> is that my daughter? And he says, uh, uh, Sean Connery says, uh, I was the other man. Yeah. 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 Uh, just Do usually you, re- you stuff remember, that you remember where you were when you heard I was the other man. Well, what it's that a line. whole back and forth. It's monumental. I mean. It's the whole back <laughs> no, and know. forth. But, but out of context, uh, that line is like nothing. But what? And it, but yeah. yeah, it makes uh, <laughs> it makes a lot of the wordplay in this like it makes sense that he's that guy because he just is back and forth, back and forth banter guy. Mm-hmm. Like he's so good at that. Yeah, well, and as a playwright as well, and he's also good at meta-textual stuff. So, uh, if you haven't seen it, in a nutshell, oh, and that that's also to explain why he attracts these huge stars. It's because they respect him so much from the theater world. Mm-hmm. But uh, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, starring Tim Roth and Gary Oldman and Richard Dreyfuss in the three main roles, and a cast of like people that you barely see, including Hamlet. So that's the other thing, is if you haven't seen it and the names don't ring a bell, you should know. Uh, or even if you know Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are minor characters from Shakespeare's Hamlet, it's important to note that this is, and it's one of the earlier times this was done, which is why it won all the playwriting awards that year and why he was considered a genius. Uh, it did this thing that's, it's 
you know, I just realized as I say it, when we were kids, this was such a bold idea. Now this is so like just mimetic. You know what I mean? Like this yeah. is just what the internet would do anyway. But this was a big deal to take something as sacrosanct as the play Hamlet and write your own play about the minor characters in it from their point of view, doing other stuff that you didn't notice that recontextualizes in the background the events of Hamlet. Right. Um, and there's actually a lot of stuff that does that now, but that was <clears throat> a notable, like, everyone was like, he did that? Give him a all play the awards. A play? Yeah, yeah. That's crazy. But, like, written around the architecture, now we have Lion King one and a half and shit like that. But um, Yeah, exactly. Hamlet 2. They all got numbers on them. <laughs> well, which is fitting because Lion King is also based on Hamlet. I wonder if there's some reference It's just there. Hamlet. Yeah. Well, yeah. no, I'm saying I bet. Yeah, exactly. So I bet at the Disney pitch table, when someone was pitching Lion King one and a half, they probably said Lion King is to Hamlet as this movie is to Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. You know what I mean? Like, I bet that was literally in the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Another film in conversation is, I mean, I guess the play as well. It's comparison to the Beckett play, Waiting for Godot. No, no, let's stick to Lion King. Okay. <laughs> no, yeah, for sure. Uh, which it's is the kind the, of... Yeah, go ahead. Even people are auxiliarily uh, aware of, like, playwriting and stuff, know that that's, like a well-known play about its abstraction. There's a lot of abstraction in this. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's usually because we're in a like pseudo reality uh, that doesn't really exist. And the people who are in the reality themselves ask questions like, Hey, reality's weird. Um, and that's <laughs> the breaking of that wall is kind of the narrative like and so it therefore makes it like it pushes it to the fun forefront of our skulls when we're you know watching it that it's like okay so everything about this is like as if you're supposed to have wa watching it as a play you're not supposed to really take right. it for granted as a real world or at least that's kind of the result of it. It doesn't make me think it's a real world because our main characters are asking questions like what is the first thing you remember, you know, when, right. like, what did we do just now, just now? Like some, the, like some magical, you know, like they're in the them. fade from annihilation. Was it called the fade? <clears throat> Whatever the fuck it was called. The shimmer. The shimmer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Shimmy, shimmy fade. Mm -hmm, it was mm -hmm. called the cocoa puff, Michael. Um, <laughs> I agree. And I want to point out that, yeah. And, it, and they, it's a comedy, first of all, and mm -hmm. it's made so apparent that the characters don't matter that Rosencrantz specifically often forgets which of them is which. Like he thinks he's Guildenstern or he calls Guildenstern Rosencrantz and Guildenstern Tim Roth is always trying to like get it to stick and it doesn't. But Tim Roth will also not remember what they did yesterday or yeah. why they're in the woods going in a direction. They'll do a whole scene and then be like, wait. We're on horses in the woods going that way. Why? And it'll be like, I don't remember because reality fades sometimes because it's weird. And they'll be like, yeah, this is a play. It's that kind of vibe. So it's, right. uh, I think, intentionally so, a direct connection with the author. Like you understand that, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you can almost see the script written in the, wor in the air as they say it. You're like, this is just Tom Stoppard showing off whatever he wants at any time in the way Brecht and the way Godard and sort of do. Whereas like, I don't know, to bring, to round out our playwrights, everyone's heard of bracket Mamet actually tries to create characters that exist as entities under themselves that are differentiable from one another, you know, like a movie, mm. like a story, they're, they're yeah. characters. But um, I think what's interesting about that is because if you go, I was a theater major in college, so uh, Beckett obviously is deeply like worshipped and read and taught. And I think because of the obvious parallels to Waiting for Godot, I always assumed that I was supposed to be looking at Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead through a lens of harsh, bleak nihilism about the nature of uh, incomprehensibility and tragic suffering that is like intrinsic to life. Cause that's what Beckett mostly did. Mm -hmm. And then I realized on this watch, 
I don't think that's the case. I think that they have tactics in common, but I was looking for too much in Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Like, I think it's okay to watch this movie just admiring how funny it is. Like, I think it's just supposed to be really funny. I mean, I know it has insights scattered throughout, but Beckett is like groping at some kind of unified thesis for living. And I think I gave this movie, I did this, this movie and play a disservice by like trying to figure out what the artsy read is. And right. I think the reason it's abstract is because they're just riffing on different funny things. I don't know that there's, I, I think it's a magic trick. I thought you were going to have something that would just like knock me out with your, uh, with your, you know, Brechtian release the gas studies. Uh, (laughs) Oh no. Uh, the, I'm getting, I watched the movie before I watched the play. So I always thought this movie at best. And I want to hear your thoughts about this is like a cliff notes version or like a big, Like, hey, here's how to understand what Hamlet is talking about in Hamlet, because uh, who knows what the fuck he's talking about in Hamlet, uh, because it's super dense and totally outside of the play itself. At least I still kind of do after reading or rewatching this, uh, because it's all in the service of understanding the existential funk that Hamlet is in. Um, Well, yeah, and it's, um, while not written in iambic pentameter... It is written in a language that's heightened to a degree that it almost blends in with the Shakespearean, although I'd argue you can still Mm. tell when it's real Shakespeare because it's one level denser and more arcane vocabulary. But um, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, as written by Tom Stoppard, basically speak in Elizabethan prose, not poetry. Um, But there is a difference between, and they even cite it, you know, when Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are talking to uh king claudius and gertrude like they're they're saying the lines perfectly and Mm. then after the scene is done they're like how is it that we knew how to what to say perfectly but then the second that it stopped and we're no longer like in that state oh yeah what's going on there there is a Dumbing you, down of the language. They're like, you were really killing it in the scene. You seemed like you knew right. what, what direction you had in life. Like, yeah, that was weird. I don't know. I just had to. And it's because, uh, obviously, they're doing this thing where it's like, imagine, like, there's NPCs, you know, yeah. in plays kind where, of. like, off screen, yeah. uh, what are they doing? I don't know. They have their own life. It's like the Pixar versions of, like, what happens when you stop looking at your toys, toys yeah. but version of uh, a Shakespeare characters play. that are just mentioned a couple times what right. are, what are they like let's round them out and i yeah maybe there's i'm sure there's all there yeah like as i said there are insights about life because they riff on things like death and mortality but i guess what i'm saying is i think it really works as essentially a stand-up set for tom stoppard because mm. stand-up sets will sometimes in act three have moments that have real insight um and when I thought about it as structured like a stand-up set where it's like we're going to do five minutes on boats, we're going to do five minutes on death. Why? Because they strung together nicely and look at these, the virtuosity of, because stand-up is just a virtuoso performance in the sense mm. that, well, more and more, I guess, like Nanette and some stand-up does have narrative arc, but most stand-up is like, I put it in this order because I thought it was funniest in that order, not for narrative means as much as callbacks and joke math and stuff like right. that. Right. And I just found I really enjoyed, I just think it's really funny. Like, I just want to yeah. broadcast that it works for me as a comedy. And Tom Stoppard also did Shakespeare in Love, correct? Uh yeah, I think wrote the yeah. screenplay. I totally forgot about yeah, that. So yeah, obviously loves writing in Shakespearean style and about Shakespearean things. I think Shakespeare and Love got an equal amount of acclaim for a similar reason, which is the trick. Because Shakespeare and Love was the trick where he actually it's it's basically a Slumdog Millionaire also trick. Um oh why did Shakespeare write I for Romeo and Juliet. Because everything in Romeo and Juliet was happened to be happening to him at, at that time, and he just wrote from mm-hmm. his life. Oh, okay, F- neat trick. But I would argue that 
Rosencrantz and Guildenstern is far superior and is like, it's like Shakespeare in Love is the dumbed down dummy version and Rosencrantz and Guildenstern because they're both doing addendums to a Shakespeare play. But Rosencrantz and Guildenstern goes hard and is like, you have to focus hard it's, and be it's a dense. lover of language to an intense degree and understand what they're talking about in the Shakespearean sections because the jokes are like unpacked from those. It's it also mm. has a feel of like MST3K Hamlet edition or like Harold and Kumar go to Elsinore, you know. <laughs> um uh I I have a question yeah. about this because I have a cuz I do agree with you but this is what has it so hard for me to pin down mm. because like there's we could choose any back and forth between the two of the, these guys, but just for the sake that of the audience, a very clear one. It, Tom Stoppard is. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I'll go back and forth, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Mm-hmm. So we got a letter that explains everything. You got it. I thought you had it. I do have it. You have it. You got it. I don't get it. You haven't got it. I just said that. I've got it. No, I've got it. Shut up. Right. So it's... Abbott and Costello, yeah. who's on first? Oh, a lot of it is. So the one I pulled out for that is, uh, do you think death could possibly be a boat? No, death is not being. You can't not be on a boat. I've frequently not been on boats. No, what you've <laughs> been is not on boats. I wish I was dead. <laughs> yeah, and at one point they play uh, they play tennis. Oh, uh, I love where that words are, are the tennis balls. Well, no, it's an imp- like that's the game. It's a classic improv game that they improv did game, on like yeah. whose line is it anyway? And that theater that kids so all did. Fu- it's so theater. It's kid. so it's hilarious. like Tom Stoppard put that in be- as an homage. I have to believe to stupid improv games that theater people yeah. actually do backstage. Zip zap zap baby. Yeah. So they just do the questions <laughs> game, but I've never seen the questions game done where. It has rigid rules and you're running back and forth across a tennis court pretending to serve your questions at each other. That is true. Right. Right. Uh, and so the reason I brought up the Abbott Costello th- stuff uh, is that you're right. The speech itself is, uh, while it's updated uh, and there aren't SAT words, it's definitely not for the lowest common denominator no. either. Uh, the wordplay is very smart. It's not up its own ass. A lot comes from the puns yes. and the same toolbox as Shakespeare. There's quite a bit of slapstick beats in this movie as well. Uh, and sex jokes. Yeah, I've, he tried to match like the ratio and humor types that a Shakespeare play actually would have. Right. And that's kind of like something that if we all remember our English teachers when they taught uh, a Shakespeare is something that they would mostly, at least for me in the public school system, they were like screaming at us is that like, uh, he was both there's lowbrow and highbrow. He was for his time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's basically, he's doing all the stuff. That's kind of high art is to and Abbott and Costello or you know, Marx brothers. Although I think my Marx brothers gets a little bit more credit than Abbott and Costello. They're doing the same stuff and I think that that might be an appeal by Tom Stoppard or just a reminder to everyone that like the best comedies mix high and lowbrow because Oh yeah. Why not? Like why why is lowbrow low and why is highbrow high? It's like taking the wind out of sails of like quote unquote like higher comedy. And I would say comedy is also built on sudden juxtaposition of contrasting elements. Uh, is it the, I don't want to unpack, I could go on for hours about this. Dr. Comedy. But that's here, the yeah. root of uh, most comedic uh, scenarios and impulses. Even a non sequitur is the juxtaposition between the expected palette of things you thought could happen next and randomness. Mm. Um, so it's very natural to take things that are taboo and put them in a space where you're about to be presentational, that juxtaposition is funny. Uh, or if you look at it through a different light, it's grotesquely tragic, but man, that's a whole nother podcast. I'd love to do with you someday yeah, heard, where we just teach heard, people uh, content. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, what I always heard, uh, comedy is exaggeration of the mundane, the ordinary as extraordinary and the mundane and the extraordinary mundane. Mundane. yeah very yeah that's yeah. like 90 yeah that hits like 93 percent of all jokes yeah um right, right. but i just want to point out the wordplay is very strong but there are also like good concept jokes that are playing on the actual thought rather than the words 
uh, I really like. They're on a boat on their way to England, and he goes, we have to see the King of England. Who is the King of England? It depends when we get there. (laughs) Yeah, I love that one. Yeah, and I, uh, there's also, we haven't even mentioned it, uh, the lead player is played by Richard Dreyfus, and what's, uh, Inglen plays Prince Hamlet, who I only recognize now because of Game of Thrones. Oh. Oh! He's like a major character shit. in Game of Thrones. He's yeah. the loyal, uh, he's, he's like Daenerys' loyal guy, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a baby. He plays Hamlet in this. this. Yeah, what's his name yeah, on Game of teenage... Thrones? I don't watch it. Uh, Sir fucking loyal. I don't care. Okay, um, but people should know who we're talking about, but they probably he's do. The, yeah, he's the guy who gets like the stone skin. Daenerys and is right hand Daenerys man. Is, yeah. yeah so, uh, anyway, he's Hamlet. I just realized um, that. He's Hamlet in this, yeah. And uh, he's actually quite good. Um, yes. He's good at playing the kind of... Uh, I also like his read. It's my preferred read of that. Hamlet uh, is intentionally fucking with people. He's not actually crazy. Yeah. Yeah. He also has a good subsection of, we overhear the word speech and he has my preferred read of instead of words, 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 which is stupid. He has words, 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 you know, it's just like, uh, I don't know. He, he clearly understands, but also like, or Tom Stoppard clearly understands the play. RNG. Yeah. Huh. Do you think Tom Stoppard gets Hamlet? (laughs) Does he understand it? (laughs) Hey, I'm the, he turned it inside out. I want to, um, but Uh, he also has, do you want to say anything else? Oh, just, yeah, that he has Rosencrantz and Guildenstern later. Uh, when that scene ends, they're talking about the scene and he goes, quoting Hamlet words. And then (laughs) Rosencrantz goes words. And he goes, Words. They're all we have to go on. So between right. them, they also said words, words, words. <laughs> words, 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 yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, he clearly gets it and understands it. And not. And it's not just like a, um atomic understanding of like, oh, here's why it's good from a, like a wordplay or a word puzzle point of view. He also understands what's going on in Hamlet. Yes. Which is honestly... The only thing that I was ever good at in, uh, in English, like language stuff, I'm terrible at English. I just called it English language stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you can already tell I was terror. I'm still terrible with uh, understanding uh, why Shakespeare is amazing. I do admit that when I read it, I go, that is amazing. But I mean, in terms of word puzzle stuff, you've always been better at that for me. I am using this as a segue to something that I do understand, which is why Tom. This is old Tom Stafford's only <laughs> film that he directed, uh-huh. because oh, it sucks. He is so good at. And at can we talk point, about how the movie's bad now? We forgot to mention that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's it's bad direction, uh, and it got terrible Al- reviews almost at the laughably. time. And, yeah, and I don't yeah. want to take from him because that's not what the thing. It can't. It's it's less that it was like a bad version of something. It's just like it's it's words are what makes it sing. Yeah. Uh, the, well, the wordplay is everything, and, and so mm-hmm. the visuals take us back seat. It, it's grown out of the words. Why should we have amazing images? They're not good. Yeah, the vi- the visuals are bad, and the. But I do disagree with the tenor of the... Some reviewers said, and the acting was is bad. And I hard disagree there because I, I really think... First of all, Tim Roth, I respect in a new way now. Because I... Oh, yeah. Because I always... Or I, you see, I've seen him in so many movies where he's the creepy thug or something and it's a bit part that I always wonder, mm-hmm. like, I don't know, is he just kind of a simple, like, down-home dude who thinks making movies is fun and lucrative and doesn't care and does whatever? And then I look right. into him and I find out, no, 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 he's like an actor's actor, long theater pedigree, super into acting and pushing himself as hard as he can in the role, blah, blah, blah. Right. He just doesn't get big roles in movies I've seen often. So between this and Reservoir Dogs, though, it's great to realize, like, no, Tim Roth is the real deal. He's, like, legit. Mm-hmm. And Was mm-hmm. Reservoir Dogs your first... Was that the first movie you saw with Tim Roth? Yes, definitely. I think Four Rooms was the first one. I still one haven't I seen Four him. Rooms. 
Oh my God. Enjoy <laughs> oh my that God. when that comes around. Um, and does he act hard in that? <laughs> uh, that's one way of saying it. Okay. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> that's ominous. But anyway, uh, and then Gary Oldman, uh, who everyone knows is incredible, but it's incredible in a in a truly theatrical way where you get him to see him do all the hard things that an actor has to do. And uh, Richard Dreyfuss, excellent as well. And I thought their chemistry was phenomenal. I think the reviewers who thought yeah. the acting was wooden are conflating the fact that it was shot so unimaginatively that the movie feels wooden. The acting is actually pretty spectacular, I think. But they basically just... Tom Stoppard sort of, honestly, sometimes it seems, picked an angle kind of at random and locked it off and had him do the scene. (laughs) And uh, there's weird editing clunkiness and the lighting is all flat and washed out. It's just not good. It's uh, geography was the big one to me. And it's almost to the point that I thought it was like an effect. I thought I was like, a joke. Oh, is he doing something where like everything's a null space where you don't know where you're supposed to be? Mm-hmm. Cause I read a thing online about how he would choose to uh, make it day would turn into night and time so that you get the feeling that it's like a play because you'd quote unquote, like read the scene heading and stuff like that. And the more and more I watched it, I was like, I don't know if that's true because <laughs> the there's like mistakes on top there. of mistakes yeah. that just that make those choices weird. Um, and that's when you know you're not dealing with someone who's meticulously designing something to be not weird. images. I think he's meticulous mm, yeah. about the what the physical bodies of the actors are doing oh, at absolutely. every given moment. Yeah. And then his visuals, he was probably just trying in over his head, making movies is hard, trying to make sure he got a finished movie out of it, you know? Yeah. Um, and yeah. I don't, I don't wish to take it away from him. He knows, you know, what it is to direct a movie. So he didn't he, direct he, another he, one after <laughs> he didn't direct another one after that. And, um, you know, we're going to be talking a, a lot about that with our other show with Kings mm-hmm. of King, uh, as well. It's, it's tough for a writer to put on someone who's so stuck in that world. Not, f- it's not like a for better or worse kind of thing it's their job to be king in that arena and then to jump out and also be like a king in the arena of like all of the disciplines of filmmaking is a completely different thing. And it's very tough. He understands how to make a good play. Uh, yeah. and I don't want to take that away from him. It's tough, uh, to f- direct a film and some plays make good movies, but a lot of plays don't really make good movies. And I think this play yeah. is better as a play. And that's basically the Roger Ebert review is like, yeah, this movie sucks. Mm. The play is one of the best plays ever written. Uh, no one be mad at Tom Stoppard. It's just not a play that should have been adapted to film, but he wanted everyone to be able to see it. And that's laudable. It just doesn't adapt well. Uh, and I bet that's my take as well. But back to like enjoying what's amazing about it. Uh, you made me realize, well, first of all, that I would love to do a podcast where we go through Shakespeare plays and you explain what's happening. And I explain literally because it is, dude, it's like Arrested Development. Like I love Shakespeare in the same way we love Arrested Development. He has Uh word plays in terms of phrase or like the best rappers ever where you're like, I would totally love to unpack for you. Like, do you not? This is a reference to that, which is why that syllable is that. The pun is that he reversed <laughs> oh, the wild. middle syllable. <laughs> who who could make a joke at that level? Because, um, yeah, Shakespeare's jokes are next level shit um, in terms of I, complexity. I know, I know of some of them, yeah. Yeah, obviously. Right. Uh, but, yeah, it always just seems so distant to me because i was like stuffy and dry born on a farm and (laughs) like i don't uh, i don't even under i don't understand what it's like to be a king you know or something like that like everything is so removed that's just that's just like all right man and then you got the and then i have to read it in like a english accent for me to get the pun and i'm just like is i understand it's amazing it is good it's a lot of work yeah but he also uh, (laughs) but that's what good stuff should be so i'm not like taking the this isn't a hot take on shakespeare i'm just saying it was you know another for a lot of people uh it's it's distance another classic thing about shakespeare is that part of shakespearean acting in the modern day is acting in such a way that you sort of puppet the dialogue. So we discount how much body language 
communicates, right? And yeah. uh, a good actor, especially applying themselves to Shakespeare, can use their body language so effectively that the implication of the line is way clearer than if you just read it or even if a mediocre to good actor read it. And I think both Tim Roth and uh, Gary Oldman achieve that in this where the Elizabethan lines become clearer to a modern audience because they're applying modern body language. Like, you might not mm-hmm. understand what the uh, you know, hawk and a handsaw line meant, but you know what it meant because you yeah. saw his eyes roll. They're going to fight. Or, or whatever, you were like, yeah. oh, that was a sarcastic retort back. Therefore, I can decode what I still follow the scene. Um, this is a tete-a-tete yeah. or this is a, the, oh, the, are these... These two gonna fuck? Yeah, you know, like it's it interesting when you, you see Shakespeare play on its feet and the cast is good, how much clearer it is than when you try to exactly. read it in English yeah. class. You go, oh, that's yeah. what that meant. Because I didn't realize he was horny while he said that. That explains everything about what that meant or whatever. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Um, um, and uh, yeah. yeah, the only other thing from like theater nerdlery I wanted to throw in was that you made me realize it is very uh, Brechtian also because of the addition of Richard Dreyfus as mm-hmm. Tom Stoppard, essentially as a playwright commenting directly on the nature of narrative and plays, uh, which seems it's, yeah, it's like, it's a super duper layered meta trick. This idea is in the way that it also, if you take the overview and have a basic knowledge of playwriting history, He's melded together. It's almost a mashup of the most famous bags of tricks of all the most famous playwriters because it's like a Brechtian take on a Shakespeare play that has elements of Beckett. You know what I mean? It's uh-huh, it, uh-huh. it's. It's so for theater kids. Tom Stoppard is like, it's by a theater kid for theater kids. This, this play. This Can you movie. go into, I know you did this on another, because mm-hmm. uh, we were mentioning the term on another podcast. God, I can't remember. Go what into it is. me Australian accent show. Well, mate. Yeah. No. Can you just uh, briefly explain what you mean when you say Brechtian in this sense? Oh, um, well, Brecht people, uh, you know, get credit for doing stuff first or, popularizing or making stuff famous first so who knows if it was uh brecht's idea first but Bertolt brecht was a famous playwright i believe german because of the name but it could be austrian uh who uh did um mother courage and her sons and uh other plays like that i might even be saying the title wrong Ooh, i'm rusty but the thing that uh the top level thing to know about brecht uh in terms of the artistic dialectic of playwriting is that they were the first uh, works that didn't try to pretend you're looking through a a magic window into some people's lives uh, mm. at all. It just said it was it, uh, said like. And the set design and stuff drew attention to the fact that this was a play. The sets would be Uh abstract shapes instead of literally what they were supposed to represent. And believe it or not, there had to be a first time someone thought to do that. And it was basically the first meta-narratives. The first plays that went like, yeah, this is a play. So one of the characters will be called Mother Courage. And she's clearly a symbol, not a real person. And when she dies Uh in this way... You read that as an analogy for what I'm saying about politics, exactly, not yeah. the, oh, the character got killed off this show. Um, and the, so yeah, in yeah, this yeah. regard, Any the bag lead of player that does played that. by Richard Dreyfus is like kind of representative of like Stoppard, Shakespeare or God yeah. or in general, the writing sense, like he's a mystical, he's the lead player, which I thought was interesting because that lead player, um, makes it he's the king actor right yes i'm interested why uh it might be that he didn't choose like the 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 dreyfus role the lead player to be a writer given that he understands the minutiae of like uh mm-hmm. the design of reality he seems to have everyone else is questioning reality or side character and not involved uh he's the only one who seems to like have it clearly in his head during the, you know, play slash movie. He's like, Oh no, it's this. Yeah. And that's intriguing to me is like, who, who do you think that the lead player represents? Or am I totally off base? Well, I, 
Do you think it represents anything? I do think the reason he's called lead player rather than writer, I think he's being used as a writer. I have two theories. One is the part is called lead player in Hamlet because he's literally the player that talks to Hamlet that sets up the play wherein will catch the conscience of the king, you know? Got it. So because Hamlet has a play within a play. Because if you're right. rusty on your Hamlet, uh, I know you aren't, Dave, but just to encase the wary listener who's like, I forget Hamlet. Is that the Macbeth no, I'm one? Totally rusty. It's um, it's the one where the ghost of Hamlet's dead father comes and says, your uncle who has just married your mother killed me. So you got to get vengeance. And Hamlet's weird plan for getting vengeance, which is very circuitous, involves partly pretending to be insane, but also having a local theater troupe put on a play about a guy who usurps his brother's throne by poisoning him. And he does that so that he can observe what his uncle does. And his uncle, of course, gets flustered and red and then stands up and is like, I need water. Like the, this play is over. And that's how he to himself mm. goes. I'm not crazy. That really was my dad's ghost. He really did it. Okay. I'm resolved to kill him. So mm. there's a play within a play. And what I love is what are you going to do in your stupid meta Tom Stoppard comedy? Of course. Oh, and so when they negotiate that with the troop, I believe his name is lead player. So I think he's just staying true to the text of Hamlet. Yeah, no, that that absolutely. But he acts like a director writer that. who also acts. I agree. He really does, yeah. and he also seems he seems he's magical. He's literally he's like God he, as well. The, he's the one that makes God. you think it's Beckett, also, because he's the one who like uh-huh. shatters reality or invokes the void and stuff. He like disappears yeah. and reappears in a mist. You know, he t- teleports our characters at the beginning of the movie into the play. You know, and his statements instead of out of the forest. His statements about the nature of theater are all transparently about life itself. So he exactly, has this like yeah. air of profundity. But uh, I did want to say the. Um, what I find so clever is they put a play with it. So Tom Stoppard's like, how do I do homage to that thing that Hamlet did, which was revolutionary at the time, have a play mm-hmm. in your play. Uh, that's like us seeing adaptation today and having our minds blown, you know? So yeah. uh, he was like, of course, a play within a play within a play. So in Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. You see the lead player talk about how, to Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Yeah, Hamlet hired us to do this play. Let's reenact that. So you see the players mm-hmm. start to go, oh, yeah, oh, you want us to do a play? Oh, okay. And then they have to go, and then they go, um, you know, Hamlet asked us to do a play within the play. So then they have to represent how the play would be a third time. So it's the players right. in front of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern as the audience doing a puppet show within their play of Hamlet. So uh, he honored the meta-ness of Hamlet by doing two extra layers of meta, which I just like a lot. Yeah, it's it's even more removal. And then uh, that it's the equivalent of cartoon versions of of a live action kind of thing. In my right? mind, the one effective editing technique in the entire film is right there because the puppet version of the evil uncle, I forget his name, Cornelius. It's not Cornelius, but um, Claudius. Claudius, thank you. Uh, the puppet version stands up and it hard cuts to a really good match cut of Claudius, the real one, quote mm-hmm. unquote, standing up and going, I have to get out of here. I can't be at this play anymore. Uh, that was the one effective edit in the movie to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, uh, yeah, it, yeah, it's, uh, solidifies the allegory. Um, yeah, there's a lot of, because it's not just that earlier than the puppet play, there's a, um, it's kind of like a kabuki theater kind of thing, mm-hmm. uh, where they're making the sound effects, but they're physically like play acting. I, they recreate the scene where the death of Polonius, mm-hmm. uh, for the, for those who forget Polonius is the guy who's a spy for Claudius hides behind a curtain in uh, Gertrude's chamber and listen to listen to the conversation with Hamlet hearing a noise. Hamlet stabs through the curtain, kills, uh, Polonius, uh, who's like a friend of his thinking it was Claudius or a henchman. Yeah. Well, and then exactly. another key point is, the only difference this takes with the text of Hamlet is in Hamlet, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are explicitly 
Claudius's henchmen. And at the end, you're happy that mm-hmm. they got killed because Hamlet was clever to switch the letters and get them killed because they were going to kill him and they're jerks. The yeah. only difference is this posits in this Hamlet still switches the letters and has them killed. But mm. this universe posits that they weren't evil. They just at no point knew what the fuck was going on. They were going to get Hamlet killed and he got them killed instead, but they never knew that that's what was in the letter. They don't understand what's going on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. That's the key change. That's the key change. There's this, uh, there's this other thing I wanted to talk about and I want your help with it. Uh, that <clears throat> I noticed something this viewing, uh, cause it's been a long time since I watched this movie. I think I watched it in high school to mm-hmm. be honest with you. Um, there is something that Stoppard is doing and it's probably in the play and I just forgot it, but it's definitely in the movie and it's this game he sets up and I want to get your read on it. And the game that I'm talking about is let's take, for example, the, the glean affection game, uh, when Guildenstern is trying to make Rosencrantz understand that as a thought and, uh, experiment, he Rosencrantz will pretend to answer as if Hamlet uh, mm-hmm. like acts who is Guildenstern will act as himself to ascertain what affects Hamlet. So it's like, they're both, you play yourself. I'm going to play Hamlet. You will be Hamlet. Ask me questions. Ask me questions. Yeah. We're rehearsing what we're going to do with Hamlet. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Rosencrantz doesn't understand it. So it's made, uh, and it's all made more insane because Guildenstern, who is the guy who plays the smarter of the two, yeah gets their names wrong and stuff. So it's just layers. You can imagine how it goes. It's a lot of wait. So I'm Hamlet. Wait, I'm I'm Rosencrantz. No, I'm Rosencrantz. uh, Yeah. (laughs) They're both killing it. I think Gary Oldman, it's his, it's his first scene. That's like Gary Oldman. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, but then there's this imagery playfulness since this first time that he does this thing. And then he does it a few more times is that, uh, Rosencrantz picks an apple from a tree and when he eats it, he immediately understands what is being said. Yeah, I love that. He eats the... So it's a nod to the tree of knowledge, yep, he right? Eats it whenever, uh, whenever it's just like the red X's in The Departed. Whenever he wants to have a right. scene where suddenly one of them does understand the meta joke because he right. knows the joke is out of legs and he wants to move on to a different joke, they take a bite of an apple and go, uh, no. Not who's on first, but a first baseman with the unlikely name of who is on first. Can we move on now? Oh, okay. You ate from the tree of knowledge, apparently. So we're good. And that is a that is also a Beckett waiting for Godot has tree of knowledge imagery as well. Right. So uh, there's this game that he starts to play where so if that's just like where we leave it and that's fine. That's like, that does more, more than most, like in terms of, it could just be a cool thing. Yeah. <laughs> to notice that does yeah. more, that does, that's movies. Yeah. That's most movies. cool things to notice. <laughs> it, cool. <laughs> but then it, he does this thing where, uh, at the later there's a, f- in that scene, there's a few pots in a row, uh, that Rosencrantz, Rosencrantz wants Gildenstern to observe. Mm-hmm. And it's clear it's he's Newton's trying cradle. to do. It's a new. He's trying cradle. to show him. Cons- he discovered conservation of motion, which is like a huge life altering. <laughs> and they've been doing this. Because I love the coin it's my favorite thing. bit. I love that bit too because it it solidified something for me because then when we look back we look at the coin flipping always coming up heads the feather and the ball. Experiment oh yeah, that's what about- I mean. The whole arch bit. There's five of him inventing. Like he discovers the, physics, the dead man's switch trapdoor, yeah. and to, to yeah. me that's very much Laurel and Hardy, honestly, because the classic mm. Laurel and Hardy dynamic would be jokes like Laurel, who's the silent, tall, skinny one, silently like does something tremendously amazing, and Hardy hits him on the head, destroying it, not noticing, you know. So in this, yeah, Gary Oldman discovers. That you can use steam to create a wind turbine. He discovers right. that the best one is the ball and the feather because he discovers because he drops a dart that has feathers on the end and it is aerodynamic because it's a dart. He drops a ball and a feathered dart uh-huh. at the same time and you see him realize 
they fall at the same rate. <laughs> He's just... That changes everything about our notions of physics. And then he goes, hey, Guildenstern, yeah. you have to see this. And he drops a big, broad feather like a quill and a ball at the same time. And the feather has air resistance, right. so it like wafts to the bottom. And, and Guildenstern goes same. like, Things are, you, what did you want me to see? And he's like, yeah. nothing, I guess. Never mind. <laughs> and he invents yeah, uh, uh, conservation of motion. He discovers, <laughs> um, yeah, that hot air rising can spin a wind turbine. He builds an ornithopter out of paper that actually flies. And Guildenstern <laughs> just crushes yeah, it. Which is amazing. <laughs> yeah. There's so many acts. So they're questioning reality the whole play, and like the 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 coin flip thing is like I said, it's uh they're obviously dealing with like they're trying to understand the physical yeah. reality and the world, like what's the physical rules of this world, uh, is the setup. But there's something wonderful that Stoppard does that if you start to look at. Like, it's clear that to me that Stoppard is just kind of doing jazz yeah. here. Like, he's like, all right, what's uh, Rosencrantz doing right now? He's just looking through a box of props and stuff and realizing he can juggle. And then, no, he, then it dawns on him sorry, to do the, the but ball. But that's also the, an incredible bit. He realizes he can't juggle. He, <laughs> you see him he going through juggle, the props yeah. and he excitedly and very judiciously picks like five particular pieces. And he puts like a rope hoop on his foot, holds mm. three balls and holds a machete and then puts a thing on his head. And then he like thinks better of it and puts the thing on his foot and the rope hoop on his head. And then he goes, hey, hey check this out. And then he drops them all simultaneously. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a good bit. And it's like, but it's like the tangential um, kind of mind of like, it's the, it's the way that the abstraction works in uh, Stoppard's mind, because I'm pretty sure like if I had like my bet money's on the idea of why he went to the mm -hmm. Newton's cradle bit. He's like, I don't know. Uh, Newton's epiphany came from like an yeah. apple tree, right? That like fell. So like gravity and like, you know, force and we got all yeah. those things going. It's not that this experiment that they display the experiments that they display in the movie have something that will be like, ah, oh, that makes me plot. understand the it's scene. A, it's not. It's a joke. It's just, it's just like, a bit. it's just playing with like, I don't know. Here's what just it, another thing. Yeah. And that's, what's crazy to me is that it's just unhinged in that regard where it's like, usually as a screenwriter, as a playwright, you're supposed to think about how, to, like, how is this a perfectly closed system? Every part of the play eats itself kind of. And that's idea. what I think brings it. He's just like, nah, just grab yeah. this from here and there it goes there and then a little that and that's kind of And the only scaffolding is the loose plot of Hamlet, which you are f familiar enough with that mm -hmm. I can just show you glimpses and you understand what point in the plot we're at now. I think that brings a full circle to, mm -hmm. in a meta way, it is, and it, so I would recommend this to people who love high-level wordplay, dense vocabulary, and who like comedies that are a million jokes a second like Simpsons or Arrested Development or the Marx Brothers because I really think that mm. that's quote unquote all it is and I think that that's kind of what's special about it and it couldn't be any other way because it's so meta that is a meta celebration of what Shakespeare is because a thing that is often overlooked about Shakespeare or because Shakespeare writes in an arcane way manner of writing that is challenging and dense for like English school students in high school. A lot of us grow up with the assumption that I guess he must've been talking about some really deep, important shit. I guess he was like Moses or whatever, or like he said, all his plays were about like how you should live your life or whatever, or, you know, the insights that shake the foundations of our souls. Nope. Uh, at the time right. he was coming out, these plays were considered, like you said, not particularly high or, ho high or lowbrow, more lowbrow than high. It was like, TV shows mm -hmm. like going to see a Shakespeare play would be like watching Bachelor in Paradise today. Uh, it was like just supposed to kill the time. And although, of course, we sometimes kill time by going to see really big, weighty movies, and Shakespeare has movies where or plays where intense shit happens. And when intense shit happens about tragedy and universal human experiences, you can unpack that and it becomes meaningful, quote unquote. But at the same time, sometimes it's just nice to go see Fast and the Furious 8. And Shakespeare wrote those too. Like, um, uh, you know, it happened, or I'm sorry, uh, Midsummer Night's Dream is just supposed to be a mm -hmm. fun romp. It's like going to see You've Got Mail. 
it's like a yeah, Big exactly. Bang theory. And uh, <laughs> I think that's what's so important about these sequences where Tom Stoppard has the players. And when this was when this is done on stage, traditionally, the actors really do this shit that's really hard to do. That would literally be, that's historically accurate. Like, that's what actors would do in Elizabethan times who didn't have Shakespeare writing for them. They would do stuff that is funny and impressive physically, but cheap. So the example, an an example in this is the players have a scene where, like, you get to see a chick naked, but it turns out it's just a dude whose butt looks feminine. And then she drowns, and the drowning Mm -hmm. is done with, like, actors pulling fabric back and forth, and it looks kind of trippy. And then at the end, a bunch of actors roll back and forth, pretending to be the waves. And you're like... That's something to look at to kill time. It took them practice and rehearsal to coordinate this stupid little show, right? Well, in Elizabethan times, there really would be these carts of players that went around just like busking, like doing these stupid little tableaus and blah, blah, blah. Right. Yeah. Just like, ah. Yeah. And I think Tom Stoppard is using this medium to revive in part. One of the bits is reviving legit. It would be like an Italian play having scenes of legitimate Commedia dell'arte because the creator really thinks classic clowning is interesting and wanted to revive it and show a modern audience that it's funny. So, uh, yeah. Or like Branagh's Hamlet or something like that, where like the strands of red cloth that come out in the death scene at the end, you know, it's like he, it it does, you get the sense that while they do the same Mm -hmm. trick in this movie, he is essentially saying like, yeah, but let's not get like, up our own no ass he's just it. saying Let's remember just people remember. used to do this for entertainment and frankly i think it still holds mm-hmm. up i think this is still entertaining enough to show you on film i think he's right uh, so yeah. it's like it's it's the movie's just and that's what's great to me is the movie is just a celebration of all the things tom stoppard loves about shakespeare that tickle him including historically accurate things that used to tickle people at, alive at that time including the fact that from a meta perspective it seems really artsy and highfalutin, but it's not. It's just a good time. And that is something that Shakespeare also is, that Tom Stoppard, I assume, appreciates about Shakespeare, that like people often think Shakespeare is like was probably like some auteur, like Kubrick or however the fuck we're supposed to say it, um, who was like, my art is very important. No, dude. He was just like trying to make like, I hope this plays in the sticks. Like, I hope it gives the folks at home a laugh, you know, Uh, a lot of the time or like Titus Andronicus, Shakespeare was just like, I want to do a really hardcore one. Let's see if we can make them squeamish in the audience. He was a genre writer, which is why I feel kinship with him. He was not up his own ass. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's just like, oh, what a what's the what are the parts of this animal? Okay, I see how it works. And let's, let's make, make it entertaining run, you know, for like, the folks uh, and let's get that money. <laughs> yeah, let's get that money, baby. Uh yeah. Uh speaking of animal parts, uh there is a uh, I would be uh, remiss if I didn't th- mention it. There's another physical thing bit. that I uh physical mm-hmm. like reality bit that I noticed that I didn't notice before, which is that it's, and it keeps coming up and I wouldn't mention it except for the fact that it keeps chasing us, uh, in these podcasts, the idea of Schrodinger's cat. Did you catch the Schrodinger's cat bit? Cause no, it, man, I don't know. Sorry. Maybe this I, is I, stretch. I'm confusing it with an episode of devs. I just watched, which is weird that I could confuse them, but go ahead. What but yeah, they show, did the, the double way. slit experiment uh, scene. And I was like, ha ha. They did the double slit. Yeah, no. Uh, Schrodinger's cat. So there's a close parallel to Rosencrantz has this whole like monologue bit where he does like, if you were stuffed in mm-hmm. a box, would you prefer to be alive or dead? Because presumably, like, because he's talking about how being alive in a box would yes. be terrible. But you <laughs> like, could say at least I'm a, not dead. But, Maybe At in least some I'm not theoretical dead, so future to point, the box will open. Who knows? Yeah. So, uh, so it's it's once again his investigation, and I was like, is is he is this like a weird dummies like Schrodinger's cat thing? Oh, the box. You know where I'm I going? He's dead. The box itself. Box. It's not just like uh, it's, a, but it's also there's a box, and we're now talking about the alive and the liveness and the deadness mm. of something uh, as a kind of leitmotif of 
a hypothetical experiment that most people, including myself, don't quite understand what's going on in the physical ramifications yeah. of it. Uh, but I mean, it is the double split uh, slit experiment because it's about the idea of observation changes yeah. the result. Um, but yeah, I just thought that that was like, why does this, why does Schrodinger's cat keep following us? We have it treats like in our pockets. Nine times. I mean, obviously yeah. it's Cohen brothers, but like it's been in a few frame rates. I thought that that was weird. Uh, but I thought that that one was pretty interesting just well, from this standpoint. I of, honestly uh, think there, you know, the, I think there is a Jungian sort of shared consciousness tipping point about the double slit experiment in Schrodinger's cat. Like you see it appear in lots of media now, uh, devs case in point. Uh, and I would argue that it's because that's the next frontier of common knowledge. And I guess what I mean by that is there is specialized knowledge that we all have about whatever we have experience with mm. through our lives. You know what I mean? But there's General generally knowledge. like, yeah. I would say that we're past the tipping point of the fact that even though it seems flat, the earth is actually round is general knowledge, right? Yeah, exactly. But there was a time where that was not, that was highly specialized knowledge. And then even earlier, only madmen and dreamers ever occurred to them that that could be the case. Um, so like, I think the next sort of general knowledge thing that people are on the cusp of just accepting is that one of the main things that science shows us that's fresh, this is new, we didn't know this 100, 200 years ago, is that mm -hmm. much like the earth thing, despite seeming ordered and consequential, there is a measure of like total random chance that is almost magically counterintuitive to the universe. And I think, mm -hmm. I think we're just like, yeah, people are more and more. We're like indoctrinating that into like the next generation or the generation after that, everyone will know that that will be common knowledge. Oh yeah. Schrodinger, Schrodinger's cat right. was that thing that proved that the universe is chaos underneath. I knew that. <laughs> I think it's, I think it's pretty well into yeah. the zeitgeist at this point. Now, in 1990, when this was made, yes, not so sure. much. I also don't know if Stoppard is doing the Schrodinger's cat thing. It just might just, it could just be coincidence. But I think that that's the kind of, it's interesting to me that I think he did it because it was on his mind. I think he knows of that trope and he cut the idea of having to explain the Schrodinger's cat thing, but it's yet another physical experiment that tries to reveal the nature and of reality to yeah. us. There must've been and a I, moment at the beginning where we could have said no, but mm -hmm, somehow we missed mm -hmm. it. We'll know better next time is the last line. So, yeah. Right, right, right. It just feels so available in there uh, now looking back, but I understand why it's not in the play uh, is just one thing that I thought yeah. was pretty interesting. Um, in a way it's, you know, kind of there and not there, so yeah. to speak. Uh, uh, but yeah, that, that's all, that was all for my mm -hmm. bit with that. Um, what else we got going? I'm about ready to wrap up, but, uh, the only thing left on my notes is I love the joke where the candle is lit and Rosencrantz puts oh, on yeah. a sleep mask and is like, you'll see it'll be fine and goes and he assumes he blew the candle out because he has a sleep mask on and he just lies down with yeah. the light on and it's all in the acting because that bit is quite simple but when you see how he does it it's very funny he's really channeling like a harpo or a laurel in this yeah he's oh, like the sure. well sure. he's like the dumb one who's secretly smart but never knows because the mean more brash one always mm -hmm. stomps him down but he doesn't care he's happy all the time <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and there's a whole bunch of plays i remember on the open road was another one that like mm -hmm. mimicked this that like if there's anything to take from like the legacy of stuff like this especially this play or you know mm -hmm. waiting for godot is like the litany of uh other plays that like paid homage to mm -hmm. this and like the way in which it's crafted like the the you know language games the uh, abstraction of reality, all that stuff. Uh, there was well, a bunch specific. of plays Hook. that came out after yeah. this that were trying to wicked. Ape, you wicked know, is stoppered. that? I mean, it's just the idea of take wicked the character that, yeah. whose point of view you didn't get and fill in their point of view, and mm -hmm. we rip that off all the time now. But this is one of the first iterations of that. I, I remember there was a play, I believe uh, it's called Travesties by okay. Tom Stoppard. No, 
Have you ever read that one? But it's, uh, I forget who it is, but it's like three larger than life figures. One of them is James Joyce, uh, like sit down and have like a conversation at a bar. And I'm like, okay, Jarmusch. And then I realize, oh, that's Jarmusch aping him sure <laughs> you know it's like you forget that he's been around for so long yeah. stoppard that uh he really changed the game even early in his career and that says that speaks to yeah stoppard. he's one of the he's better writers good. that there is <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> it's very good yeah exactly um all right this is a perfect yeah, time uh, uh, yeah i highly recommend the marx brothers that shit holds up. Laurel and Hardy, oh, yeah. some does, yeah, some doesn't. Suit. But if you get like a greatest hits of their shorts, it is still quite funny. Yeah, yeah, uh, for sure. And it's it's dated stuff. That's why I like. Um, I think Marx Brothers. Marx Brothers hold, are almost head. timeless because they were one of the first troops to actually discover the non sequitur, and non sequiturs have a timeless quality right. to them. Like uh, Groucho do. will say stuff that breaches etiquette so extremely that I can't imagine a time where it won't still hit. <laughs> like, yeah, we're like, he's just talking mm-hmm. and then suddenly he'll turn to camera and all the lights go off and everyone behind him freezes. And he goes, and now a strange interlude. And he just says a bunch of random funny nonsense and then goes back to the scene that will always hit. Cause breaking the stream of the narrative is so jarring and it always will be. I love that. <laughs> what? What's a good Marx Brothers to get into if you haven't ever gotten into them? I would say Duck yeah, Soup. Yeah, Duck Soup or Animal say? Crackers, probably. I mean, that one's the super yeah. popular one to get in because it's so available. There's a lot Horse of pretty good, good ones. That one, I... Th- Horse Feathers oh, really? is my nice. favorite, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it's maybe because I've seen mm-hmm. Duck Soup so many times and studied it. that At a certain point, you just... You stop... Like when, did you ever have that effect? Like when you started studying stuff, you started to like it like a little bit less, even though you knew oh, sure. it was good. Yeah, You're yeah. just like, ah, it's oh. over. Also, you yeah. mentioned animal parts. And ever since then, I've been trying to re- remind myself to say, so if you get nothing else from this episode, Mike Nesmith, one of the monkeys, his mother invented whiteout. Um, he, uh, very <laughs> That's specific, a really weird but tangent. he, he took his monkeys yeah. and whiteout money and wanted to be a sketch comedian. And he had a short lived, I believe there's only two episodes in existence sketch show that along the lines of Saturday night live, but starring and co-written by Mike Nesmith from the monkeys. Um, and there's, there are so two anthologies. Now one is called elephant parts and the other is called, I forget, but there's two and they're both, very funny, and I bet you can find them on YouTube. So if you're like me and you love sketch comedy so much, you're always looking for new good sketches. Check out Elephant Parts, uh, especially the Twilight Zone. I'm surprised sketch. we never talked about this. <laughs> yeah, I'll look at this. Yeah, this is all I'll news send you to some me. Links, I've never bro. heard of this. Um, yeah, bro. Um, yeah, it's funny you mentioned the sketch comedy. Well, it's not. It's I. I know why you mentioned the sketch comedy thing because this is, feels it like does a really feel like a sketch, sketch anthology game. to me. Yeah. Right. Right. I, I totally knew that we we're going to get into like the whole doctor mm-hmm. comedy of it all at, up front in this podcast because I was like, oh, yeah, this is just yeah. a wordplay. Uh, this is just a little, you know, mad libs, <laughs> so to speak, but like very, very on very, very dense and a lot, uh, a, a lot more. Oh, A Night at the Opera is also a good marks. <laughs> all right. What else do we want to say? I think I'm just thank good. you to David yeah, Christopher Jason, Bell. Jason, Jason, Jason. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, man. Thank you so much for your support. And uh, it's funny because we got, we've had a lot of people ask for this one uh, in a list because uh, we usually ask people uh, just for more information on Pick the Flick tier. Uh, when people, when you sign up for it, uh, you send us a list and we choose one from the list. Um, and a lot of people, this had lists, been on the yeah. list for a long time. Uh, and we finally decided, well, there's been like four in a row that have asked for Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. So clearly our audience knows the type of movies they want to hear us talk about. Hopefully we did it justice. Uh, so we finally just, uh, chose this one, uh, 
to do. And uh, yeah, thanks again, my man. Oh, thank you. Oh, you were talking to him. Mm-hmm. All right. I was thanking you. Uh, I'm thanking you. Jason. <laughs> yep. Well, thank hey. you. You know what? Hey, thanks thank for thanking you. me. All right, thanks. dude. Till next time. That's frame rate. This has been a Small Beans endeavor. We're a bunch of pals who make podcasts, sketches, music, web series, and movies. The Beans always have new ideas percolating, so make sure to check us out at patreon.com slash smallbeans. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash smallbeans, where you can browse all of our current and past content, see what we've got planned in the future, and learn how your support can help the Small Beans grow into huge, giant monster beans. If you enjoyed this content module, please like, rate, subscribe, or tell a friend about us. We love you!